Welcome to Gateway to Growth, a new series of podcasts brought to you by JCB, Japan's only international payments brand. In each episode, you hear a discussion between guests at the sharp end of business change and transformation in the payment sector. We'll be putting important topics under the microscope in each episode, ranging from why partnerships are a priority to what are the essential e-commerce trends you need to understand. JCB provides cutting-edge payment solutions for our 140 million car members worldwide. We have 60 years of experience to draw upon. So prepare yourself for a good half hour's worth of useful insight, advice, and anecdotes. Hello, I'm Victoria Pereira Usher. I'm European Head of Marketing at JCB International Europe, and I'm delighted to host this first episode of Gateway to Growth. Today, I welcome Andrew Mitchell, Vice President Development and Infrastructure Support at JCB International Europe, as my guest. We're going to dive into some of the topics discussed in our recent report, Payment Perspectives and Future Gazing. Over the next half an hour, we'll talk about JCB's perspectives on some of the biggest issues surrounding the growth of the payment sector, drawing upon Andrew's expertise. Good morning, Andrew, on this rainy day. I wonder, before we start, can you please tell us a little bit about what you do at JCB? Good morning, Victoria, and uh, it's great to be with you. And you know, I'm really grateful to have this this chance to talk with you and to share some insights. What I do principally within JCB, in a nutshell, is probably infrastructure projects, and they are typically projects that are related to JCB's global strategy. So, the typical. Projects that I've been involved with um, in these last years are things like working with ATM cash machines and increasing the infrastructure and availability of cash. I've worked on implementing API technology for external partners to connect with our systems. Um, I've also worked on moving away from uh, acquiring, merchant acquiring that we do in the market and introducing new ways of uh, partnering with licensee acquirers to accept our retailers rather than JCB doing it ourselves, so moving to a more orthodox card rail. And additionally to that, probably more lately, I'm more often than not involved in contactless implementation, which is something we're looking to increase now. And as part of the kind of overarching strategy of JCB, I tend to be involved quite often in industry engagement. And that means both you know, industry groups of common stakeholders and associations that are related to uh, regulatory engagement. So I feel like I have probably a good pan-European expertise to uh, be able to talk about our business. Okay, great. I mean, there's a lot to go through there, I think, and unpack. <laughs> So I guess with that in mind, Andrew, and given your background and some of the things that you've just discussed, I think I want to talk about what's happening currently and especially big trends uh, affecting our sector, so the financial sector and consumer behaviour specifically, because we have seen that some of these behaviours have accelerated over the past year, I'm guessing because of you know, many factors, including the most obvious one, the pandemic. What are some of those trends that you're seeing and how are these being sped up uh, in the current sort of, you know, market in the current time that have a possible impact to either retailers or stakeholders in the ecosystem? Well, Victoria, I think probably as a start point, uh, e-commerce has definitely been uh, something that we've seen increasing massively and it's it's played a big part in, in my job role. Uh, I think 
UK is probably a good mirror to hold up as a, a symbol of, of how e-commerce is progressing globally. And particularly for us, you know, JCB people, we've seen that uh, the UK is a very good hub of e-commerce. So particularly there are many uh, providers that operate on behalf of merchants that are running out of UK. So we see that in the UK, um, the Office of National Statistics that are producing official statistics on these kind of things show that maybe around 10 years ago, um, about six or seven percent, depending on the year of the tr proportion of transactions sales transactions were conducted by e-commerce, internet transactions, not face-to-face -face traffic. Over 10 years, that's increased, you know, six to 7%, up to 20%. During the lockdown, that actually jumped to almost 35% at times. During this first period, maybe the, the springtime of March to June 20, when UK was locked down, you can instantly see a 15% shift in e-commerce volume uh, as a proportion of transactions. So I think there is a general trend and then there have been very specific pandemic related trends. And it will be very interesting to see um, how those continue in a kind of post pandemic situation. I know that you've been uh, particularly involved with working with our sales teams and working perhaps with retailers and retailer organizations. I was very curious to see actually what you'd noticed. Well, you know, it's, it's really interesting, actually, uh, from our side, because obviously we are a very rich data organisation. So we can see consumer trends based on their spending patterns and behaviours. And I think a, a particular statistic that, you know, caught my eye was that we've grown uh, in e-commerce sales by 300%. And, you know, when you look at that over a period of four years, you kind of got to ask yourself why. Why is that? We obviously work with licensee partners to understand what merchant partners they have based on our customers' needs. So when they travel to Europe or if they buy things online, you know, what are some of those kind of retail partners that we need to be engaged with? So we're always looking to drive value and scale, obviously, because the majority of our customers are in Asia. But the second thing comes as well from um, issuance. You know, we, we're, you know, every year we're increasing our card member base. We're at 140 million card members now. And these are hungry card members who started earlier in the pandemic than we did, they're now coming out of it and they are definitely using their card more. They want to spend on their card and it's an opportunity, I think, for European acquirers to understand that there's definitely appetite there from our customers. So uh, that's those are two things, Andrew, that are related to, uh, you know, our 300% growth increase in e-commerce. And I think also, you know, you're going to touch on this. Uh, so... I'm not going to look under the bonnet too much, but it's more around the, the technical aspects of payments, right? Uh, so I'm going to pass it back to you because I think that's a really important thing to t talk about today is what happens uh, with regard to payments, uh, especially as we touch on with things like security, Andrew, because, you know, as we think about, um, you know, technology evolving, and as we think about the authentication process, you know, every time I go and buy something, my whatever I'm buying and whoever I'm buying from is asking me to authenticate either with a thumbprint or with a digital code or it knows my data. And I think as we become more advanced as a society, we're going to see an increase in demand from the consumer to be more secure. So I guess from your side, what are the solutions and remedies that uh, could abate these concerns? As you say, rightly say, the real emphasis of the market now has probably moved away um, from plastic-based transactions face-to-face, you know, card transactions that we would typically see. 
and there's been an, uh, an acceleration uh, towards device usage. And I think this is going to be a continued trend, um, you know, pre-pandemic, post-pandemic. Um, that it's it's taken us you know many many years to get plastic cards to the point of mass adoption, but I think now you know everybody understands a, a very simple hygiene principle that you know we should operate contactless as much as possible if we can operate uh, our transactions via our phones. Um, I think that will instigate a very big behaviour shift. So I think our day to day uh, behaviour is now moving towards the smartphone. And, you know, I, I've definitely had that talk, you know, the talk that every child has to have with their parent um, in relation to how to use Apple Pay. And I'm pretty sure most of us have uh, at some point and will do so in future. Um, so I think even, you know, the younger generations are getting to grips with this. I think the older generations will also uh, move towards that. And these would typically be the kind of less adopters, maybe slightly smartphone shy users. I think country by country, we're also seeing a big shift because, you know, in 2019, I think we measured uh, as JCB within a three year period that we'd actually seen tokenized mobile initiated contactless transactions become a kind of 70% base of our contactless transactions. And actually around 40%, I saw some, you know, independent statistic that 40% of people in Japan have used their smartphone to make a payment. Now, these kind of statistics are very difficult to kind of grab and, and to grasp. But if we're thinking about, you know, nearly half the market uh, beginning to actually use their phone to make a payment and roughly sort of 70% of contactless payments being mobile based, I think, you know, this is a very good key for us uh, in the future. And I think that's a really important point that you just made there, which is, you know, historically, and I think, you know, with my marketing head on, you know, we tend to sort of segment people into groups, right? Sort of millennials, Gen X, Gen Y, they buy differently. Actually, what I'm seeing at the moment is we shouldn't really be pigeonholing people into those scenarios because everybody is driving through e-commerce. So you, we, the Royal We and JCB and, and probably other people in the ecosystem need to think about that, those kind of channels and those kind of, you know, diverse methods of payment. We do have a... Um, responsibility to be able to offer those diverse methods of payment yeah absolutely and, and the key thing is okay we provide these payment methods these instruments that are products that our consumers can use but it's also to keep the retailers on message and to make sure that the retailers are always considering their future space and how it will look you know we're seeing right now a, a very big change in POS technology, point of sale technology, you know, the machines that you see in shops, maybe in future that might be more mobile based or that may be supplemented by using our mobile phone devices as acceptance devices for payment products. So, you know, we have to keep in constant consultation with the retailers as to what they use. We've seen a proliferation of uh, mobile POS devices recently. I think if you go into many stores, you know, you will see your retailer approach you with a tablet in their hand uh, in order to accept payment devices. So it's, it's a very key thing that retailers consider their market and consider their modality. And I, I was very lucky enough to spend time with a chap from Toyota recently, and he was talking about uh, his opportunities within the mobility sector to increase how Toyota did business. And, you know, 
different retailers may have a very different view. In Toyota's case, for example, they were talking very much about moving into the ride-sharing sector, you know, lend-lease sector. So you have to have a kind of one eye on the future. And from our point of view, we have to make sure that we enable the transition for retailers to be able to keep up with the technology that we are churning out. And I think that's very key to keep the engagement to make sure that payments are always frictionless. And so they're frictionless, but how about secure? Because you talked about different markets, early adopters. We know that people have a different system uh, and they pay with different methods. But how are we regulated to ensure that the customer safety is front of mind? I think nowadays, um, particularly within Europe, there have been a lot of initiatives over several years that we're really seeing bear fruit now uh, with regards to new regulations that are incredibly important societally, but also specifically within our payment industry. Um, Particularly, we have uh, regulations such as the Payment Service Directive, which is now going through its second iteration, which is really groundbreaking. Um, We also have data protection regulation um, and money laundering regulation. And these actually kind of uh, interweave each other and produce different impacts to us. But I think what they represent, if we look at that kind of globally, Um, is a shift, a real paradigm shift towards our understanding of of how we should manage payments. They're more existential questions, or I think they at least pose more existential questions rather than just pure legal requirements. But they certainly do have their impact. So, you know, if I drill down into a kind of more practical level, if we look at Europe, um, for example, now, we may just be getting used to being using our mobiles for contactless at point of sale. But what I think you will start to see, um, other than these authentication messages that you, you mentioned earlier, where you know, you're know you trying to buy something online, but now you may have to input uh, a code that you receive on your mobile. So you get an SMS message asking you for this one-time password. But I think what you start to see progressively because of the uh, PSD2, the Payment Service Directive Regulation, um, is that even for contactless, you may end up double tapping your phone. You may, may now be making a pin entry for a contactless transaction. I think that will be something that is progressively introduced, even though you know the laws are, are there and in place, but you know the market takes a little time to catch up to them. The impact of these kind of regulations typically impact the issuing and the acquiring side of the business. So right now, I think there's a lot of disruption between the retailers and the acquirers and the issuer banks and the different uh, obligations that they have to meet. Particularly at the moment, there's a big discussion about how uh, we exchange messages for internet transaction. When you as a customer, you try to buy something online, uh, who has to make a decision? Who has the ultimate responsibility of fulfilling their legal obligations? Um, And a lot of that is now back and forth. and, And we as payment networks, uh, especially international payment networks, are being asked to mediate that. And I think probably in addition to that, other than the the kind of impacts that are directed on our methodologies of payment, the underlying um, tone now is really to try and keep up with the arms race of cryptography. And this is a very key thing. And it's to make sure that our data is fully protected. So what I think you'll probably see um, is greater moves towards tokenization. So ensuring that our payment credentials are not our physical card number. So, you know, in future, you may not actually be inputting your card number when you try to buy something online. Perhaps you will use your device as a kind of anonymized technique to actually produce a credential. 
that could be used for an internet transactions because you know let's face it if there's a data breach it could be quite painful so you know squirreling away our data behind firewalls is is kind of a, a necessary thing for us but you know we still have to keep it light touch absolutely and i think there's two things i want to kind of pick out from what you've just said andrew first of all is people might not know what a cryptographic network is can you just explain a little bit about what that is it's a trust network, if I have to put it in, in one phrase, and it's to ensure that, you know, points of interaction, if we want to imagine handshakes uh, occurring between, you know, a consumer's payment instrument product and a retailer's point of sale, whether that's e-commerce or actually face-to-face, um, are secure. And to make sure that, you know, nobody is able to intersect that communication. And then obviously there are several communications that you know tend to go on before a final uh, billing is produced to that consumer. At the moment, you know we we operate on traditional uh, payment rails, traditional card network rails, but in future we may operate more on banking rails. But in the end, we still have to authenticate and to make sure that the person that intended to spend that money. Um, has their data protected at the first point of interaction and all the way through the end chains. So authentication providers are, are now providing the engines for that and they have to make sure that every single stage of the data exchange is encrypted. So the consumer's data is not intersected uh, between the retailer, the retailer and whoever is paying the retailer um, can pass a message in a fully secure environment. So if we imagine a series of handshakes that each occurs with their own, within their own unique bubble, uh, but also within a kind of modus operandi that everybody can understand. That's probably how to do it. But, you know, we're now in an age of quantum computing, or at least we're getting towards that. It sounds very futuristic, but it's really not so far away to the point where, you know, cryptography is going to get harder and harder because we have to keep up with the speed of computers. Computers can break down algorithms that are used for cryptography and cryptographic message encoding and they can break them down very quickly so you know it's an arms race out there so you talked about authentication and you talked that we are in separate bubbles and we you know we're allowed to talk to each other but with you know privacy laws and various other kind of regulations that you talked about money laundering psd2 you know payment service directive the gdpr there's all these kind of regulations that tie us and bind us if you like and there's a you know proper code of conduct but really what does that mean to the retailer well, the retailer can trust us and I think the main thing is that we need to take that concern away from the retailers. I think that's absolutely essential, not just for retailers, I think also for the issuers of our payment instruments. The important thing for us is to make sure that we propagate technology that is secure and reliable. So we have, as a, a business, collaborated at, at wide scale with other industry players, be it you know uh, equipment manufacturers such as mobile phone manufacturers or you know PC manufacturers, for example, but also principally with the other international payment networks. Um, to produce technology, standards, protocols that are able to be used in a globally interoperable way, but also applied in a very simple manner within the market. And I can see that, you know, within our own initiatives, within those groups, um, certainly we have a big concern about, you know, deployment now, but also one eye on the future to make sure that we do keep up with whatever quantum computing is actually able to achieve. So, Andrew, for the payment sector to provide the excellent customer experience that consumer are looking for, both in person and online, it's going to take more partnerships and collaboration among stakeholders in the ecosystem. Can you tell us uh, where you think this trend is going to head to 
and if you can think of any strong alliances that are taking place that are driving that um, sort of positive customer collaboration. Yeah, I think for us as a business, the the key thing that we all need, you know, every stakeholder um, within our business is probably very keen to ensure that customer trust is retained. I think, as I mentioned before, this is, you know, the thing that enables us to move our money around safely as consumers, businesses. Um, So we have to maintain that. And I think collaboration groups have been there for a long time in our industry. Uh, We participate in them, you know, whether it's the cryptographic standards organizations or whether it's even, um, you know, simple data protection organizations. You know, we've participated heavily in those from the beginning to ensure that our ideas, our concepts are propagated and that our partners, our stakeholders, the merchants particularly, understand um, best practice. And it's key for us to maintain that best practice um, throughout whatever changes our industries bring. And, you know, it's important for us also to share our understanding of our consumers' behaviour. And and we can do that through engagement in in various uh, public sources. You know, even now, I think we've been producing white papers to share to the market what we see as our overriding consumer trends. Um, And I think that creates a constant feedback chain. So as much as we can get together at kind of macro level amongst, you know, fellow international payment networks and ask stakeholders to join that, it doesn't really serve the other denominators uh, of the market, such as the retailers. So we need to keep engaged with other stakeholders and retailers are particularly important for that and to create a feedback chain of their experiences. Um, We typically see a lot of feedback top-down feedback even from our uh, headquarters and from our different issuing banks around the world of what our customer experiences are like and I think that's a very good conscientious approach within our organization that we keep that real feeling of the card member and you know we take that into our participations in industry groups so along with the kind of technical standards organizations that we operate with we can also contribute with the feeling of a customer You've been certainly involved in, in working with our business more in the commercial elements. What do you see? Do you know what that's so interesting that you picked up on the voice of the customer? It is really important to always have your pulse on what the customer wants, right? And in order to keep relevant, especially in the situation we find ourselves now, you've got to keep relevant and you've got to be useful. So we've got to understand what those trends are. And, you know, the way that we or I in my team grow partnerships is through those kind of retailers who have a large portfolio across Europe. We drive scale through the region and we drive scale through the card product. And our principle of Omoten actually drives everything that we do. So our customers expect a high level of service, whether they are business partners or whether they are consumers. And in my role and in with my team, we drive partnerships through retailers that have those uh, large scale you know, opportunities. But we also drive partnerships through our media partners in order for people to understand what we do. I think JCB in Asia is a homegrown band. We are growing. We need to explain that probably a little bit more in Europe. And that's how we, Andrew, do it. Uh, there's a lot, obviously a lot more behind it. <laughs> but the, the way that we try and really drive those kind of partnerships more is by creating content that's relevant and understood. So, you know, today... We're talking about, with you about uh, payment perspectives. 
you know, our next podcast will be about e-commerce. But essentially, those strong alliances, I think, as a business, come from many different facets. It could be with your team as terminal vendors. It could be through, you know, a legal partner that we partner with in terms of regulation, etc. It's a great point. We have partnerships with organisations that kind of take that voice of the retailer uh, back into creating new standards that enable smoother operations for retailers. I think we participate in a group called Nexo, and that's a really great example of how retailers can deploy their point of sales technology in a universal standard around the world globally. And it just makes things simpler. So, you know, we know that we have to be reactive. Um, issues, things as such as financial inclusion are becoming more and more important. You know, we in the UK, I think, have seen a, a big movement towards making sure that we don't drift into a cashless society and that access to cash is important because, you know, cash payments in the UK have dropped 15%, I think, in the year, uh, even before COVID. And we might start to deploy techniques, things like counter cash, you know, where you can go into a, a typical store and get your cash from uh, the retailer itself rather than a cash machine. You know, these techniques must be things that we're able to deploy. Andrew, it's always lovely talking to you. But we are running out of time, I'm afraid, and we are coming to the end of the show. But one final comment from you. What are you most excited about for the future? Well, I think that could have its own podcast. (laughs) You know, we probably see the future um, being that we diversify our technology. I think we're moving very much towards a kind of biotech uh, environment where electronic ID becomes progressively more important and that's not just a methodology that could be used for payments could even be used simple things such as uh, passport control for example whereby we become those providers and I think you're starting to see a diversification of that um, I think maybe QR code technology maybe something that we look towards in future um, because you know many of us have become familiar with these kind of uh, test and trace applications that have been used throughout the pandemic so those of us that weren't familiar before you know recognize those barcodes if if you need to go into a restaurant Um, and perhaps the interoperability of payments within an open banking environment could also be another sphere for us to consider at the moment open banking in uk is quite strong across europe is not so much but i think multiple regions are looking at this Uh, particularly Europe, US, China, everybody's concerned to make sure that the banks get maximum return um, for um, payments and to make sure that fintech is encouraged to create more efficient forms of payments. So, you know, realistically, I think we will see an increase in open banking. It's it's slow, but, you know, in UK, um, the open banking implementation um, entity basically can show over a six month period, open banking usage has been doubling and doubling. So we might start to see, I think, an increase in that space. And that's something that we have to work with uh, to make sure that we are encouraging um, the rails of that to develop in a way that's beneficial to the the customer. So I think everything that we must do must be customer focused. And that's the key for us for the future. That is always music to my ears. Thank you so much, Andrew. Uh, It's been a pleasure talking to you today. So thank you for sharing all of these thoughts on, on important topics. Uh, What I would like to say is any listeners who want to download the Payment Perspectives and Future Gazing Report to explore the topics that we discussed today can find a link in the show notes accompanying the podcast. We hope you found our chat useful and look forward to our next episode of Gateway to Growth when I'll be talking to my next guest on all things payments and the growth of e-commerce. Until then, goodbye. 
Thanks for joining us on the Gateway to Growth podcast. If you found this episode useful, please share with your colleagues and network. And why not subscribe so you don't miss future episodes? Please send feedback and suggestions for future topics to our email address, marketing at jcbeurope.eu.